Hello and welcome to the JNMP podcast. My name is Elizabeth Hyten and we're doing a double episode for this month's JNMP edition, speaking to both the editor and the patient choice for the April 2017 JNMP. So I'll be joined first of all with um, Professor Bart Jacobs from the Erasmus Medical Centre in Rotterdam and we're going to be talking about his uh, recent review in the JNMP looking at treatment dilemmas in Guillain-Barre syndrome and then I'm going to be speaking with uh, Dr James Rooney from Dublin and we're going to be speaking about his paper in the JNMP looking at the C9 of 72 expansion um, in males with spinal onset ALS. So first of all, I'd like to welcome um, Professor Bart Jacobs from Rotterdam onto the JNMP. Thank you very much for joining me today, Bart. Thank you. So first of all, your paper is about supporting clinicians with decision-making when treating patients with um, Guillain-Barre syndrome, or GBS as I'll call it from now on. Uh, what encouraged you to write this review? What did you feel was missing from the literature and from the guidelines for clinicians? Um, well, we are an uh, expertise center for inflammatory neuropathies in the Netherlands, and we are uh, coordinating uh, various treatment studies for GBS. Um, and as a service for the participating centers, we have what we call a GBS telephone. That's an, a number that uh, can be reached by the participating centers uh, 24-7 uh, with, tr- with questions about the diagnosis and the treatment of the Guillain-Barre syndrome. Uh, We are doing this already for uh, some years, and uh, we noticed that there are quite frequent problems in the treatment uh, with GBS. And, um, well, we had the feeling that we had to pay more attention on it. There's a kind of top 10 uh, of problems that frequently occur. uh, That formed the basis of this this review. Um, At present, there are no guidelines um, or systematic uh, data reviews on the treatment of uh, the Guillain-Barre syndrome. Of course, there's the Cochrane review um, that is summarizing uh, the evidence that uh, is existing, but what you see in the Cochrane reviews is that it is only focusing on uh, specific types of patients, the really classic uh, GBS patients in a very typical therapeutic window. Um, And uh, in clinical practice, of course, you frequently find atypical patients and outside the treatment uh, window uh, and that gives this uh, treatment uh, dilemmas. So our review is uh, is, um, is an attempt to uh, to help the, the clinical colleagues uh, facing these uh, these problems. Your paper addresses two main issues in treating um, Guillain-Barre syndrome: when to start treatment, and then when to change the treatment or, or implications of changing treatment. So could we focus on one of those dilemmas in this podcast today, but in particular, when to start the treatment and the therapeutic window for GBS? Um, could you tell us a little bit more about what you call in your paper, time is nerve? Well, this uh, time is nerve is, of course, referring to uh, the more well-known time is brain. I think most of the clinical neurologists uh, will know this concept. Um, and that refers to uh, the short time window uh, when uh, thrombolysis or thrombectomy can be provided uh, in patients with an ischemic uh, stroke. And we wondered if this concept, um, in, in a way, also accounts for the Guillain-Barre syndrome, because also the Guillain-Barre syndrome is an acute um, inflammation that is damaging uh, the nerve. And you can imagine that uh, it is good to uh, to stop this uh, inflammation as soon as possible uh, and therefore to start the treatment as soon as possible. And I think that is an important um, uh, issue. 
um, to prevent further uh, nerve damage. And uh, the, the diagnosis of GBS is not always that uh, easy. So it's, it's important to have an, an early diagnosis and start uh, treatment as soon as possible. The other question that comes with that um, is uh, what exactly is the, uh, uh, the time that you can still provide uh, treatment that is supposed to be effective in a patient. Um, so um, most of the randomized controlled trials uh, conducted in GBS, uh, they use an, an interval of two weeks or four weeks. But we notice that uh, frequently uh, the diagnosis is made uh, for sure after that period or that the patient is referred between uh, hospitals and then comes the question if there is still an option to treat uh, a patient who has not received uh, adequate treatment before that. And uh, no one knows um, if after, let's say, two or four weeks, uh, you can still um, uh, provide uh, uh, treatment. And well, we made some recommendations on how to, uh, to, how to handle that. I have to, to, to emphasize that it is all based on expert opinion. So it is our policy here in the expertise center in, uh, in, in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Um, there is some proof for that and we provide that in the, in the review, but it is also part uh, based on, um, on an expert uh, opinion. So in short, time, time is nerve refers to uh, uh, start the treatment as, as soon as possible and give some uh, information on what is probably the, um, the uh, effective uh, uh, time window. So is there evidence to suggest that the clinical variants of GBS, such as Miller-Fisher syndrome, for example, all share this sort of common therapeutic window or benefit from the same time as nerve window, I suppose? Uh, we, do, we do not know. Um, but I think the key question is if uh, in an individual patient, uh, is the inflammation still ongoing uh, and is there, if there is still um, uh, nerve damaging uh, ongoing? Um, because if there is evidence for that uh, in an individual patient, then you have, I think, a good argument to start immune uh, modulatory uh, treatment. Uh, the problem is that we are not sure uh, in an individual patient uh, if there is still ongoing uh, inflammation and nerve damaging. We have no biomarkers to record that. Uh, of course, you sometimes have evidence from from the from the clinical um, uh, examination. So if an patient uh, get worse uh, clinically, then you, I think you have a good argument to, uh, to start uh, treatment uh, irrespective of the, of the variant of, uh, of GBS. Uh, but sometimes the patient is more in a, uh, let's say, stable condition that can be very worse, of course, uh, and then we are not sure if there's still ongoing inflammation. So we are still in the dark there. But our advice would be that if a patient uh, is further deteriorating, uh, that there is a good argument to uh, to provide treatment, even if this is um, two or four weeks after uh, onset of the uh, Guillain-Barré uh, syndrome. Um, there's also an, an, another variant uh, that's important to mention here, and that is the acute onset uh, CIDP. So, in fact, these are patients that have an, uh, a CIDP, not a GBS, but they have an acute uh, presentation of the disease. And in the first weeks, um, uh, this uh, patient, they fulfill the diagnostic criteria for GBS and they are treated as such. But what you see in those patients is that uh, after improvement, uh, after IVIG, that uh, the patients will get worse uh, after a few weeks uh, and then needs uh, additional treatments. So that's an important recommendation that if there is an 
um, uh, an, uh, deterioration of a patient, especially eight weeks after uh, onset of disease, that you have to think about the diagnosis CIDP. And then, of course, the patients need um, chronic treatments uh, in intervals with IVIG or switch to uh, corticosteroids or plasma exchange. I mean, your paper outlines um, your recommendations, which are based on existing evidence and the personal experience of the, uh, the experts at the Erasmus Medical Center. What do you guys believe needs to be done next, I mean, to help fill this knowledge gap in treating GBS? And why is this so important for, for moving forward in this disease? Well, I, th I think it is important to do further research on this because um, it is evident from, from our experience with this GBS telephone that there are many questions in clinical practice that are unanswered uh, yet. Uh, and I, I expect that at least in 25% in, 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 uh, of, the, of the cases there is such a dilemma. So it's quite frequent. Um, the reason to do uh, further research is also that, well, this is an expert opinion, and of course, experts, expert opinions are good, but proof is better. Um, so I think that uh, more therapeutic studies uh, should be conducted. Um, uh, that's quite difficult in GBS because GBS is a rare disease. It is a uh, clinically uh, highly heterogeneous uh, disease, so it's quite difficult to get sufficient numbers of patients. But still, I think that randomized control trials should be done uh, with new medicines, but also for situations uh, where we do not have uh, a definite uh, answer yet. A second opportunity could be uh, to conduct uh, observational uh, cohort studies. So there's not a real trial in there. It is just a recording of uh, what uh, centers give as a treatment uh, to their patients and then compare the, um, the uh, recovery of those patients after that uh, treatment. Such observational cohort studies, um, and, and such studies are called uh, comparative uh, effectiveness uh, research. And what you need for that is a very large um, number of patients uh, that, uh, in which the, uh, the clinical data and follow-up is, is uh, uh, collected in a very standardized way. And we are doing that now in the uh, International uh, GBS Outcome Study, or IGOS, that's an uh, international uh, cohort study uh, in which uh, more than 150 um, hospitals uh, from uh, 19 different countries are participating uh, and we are collecting uh, an extensive uh, information on, on the patients. We all, almost have now reached um, patient number uh, 1500, so it's a very large uh, cohort. And we hope to use uh, that information to compare uh, clinical situations where probably never a uh, randomized control trial will be conducted on. Uh, that's so to say a second best because of course the, uh, the randomized control trial is still the gold standard for doing therapeutic uh, research. Um, I think a third important um, development should be that uh, guidelines for the treatment of Guillain-Barré syndrome will be developed by a larger panel of experts than only uh, the Rotterdam uh, group here. Um, this is our opinion, I have to emphasize that, and uh, it is open for discussion, and it would help if we uh, uh, are together with more experts from, from, from other centers that have a lot of experience in treatment of GBS, and see if we can provide a an, uh, an, uh, an clinical guideline that can be used in practice. So I encourage our JNMP listeners and readers to um, access the review by Professor Jacobs looking at treatment dilemmas in Guillain-Barre syndrome and, and 
uh, add to the debate um, with terms of expert recommendations. Um, Professor Jacobs, thank you so much for joining me today on the JNMP and for speaking to me about your work. Thank you, Orly. In the second part of this podcast, I'm joined by Dr. James Rooney, who's a research fellow at the Academic Unit of Neurology at Trinity College in Dublin. And we're going to be talking about James's recent paper in the JNMP, which was this month's editor's choice, looking at the C9 North 72 expansion in males with spinal onset ALS. So James, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, thank you, Elizabeth, for the invitation and uh, thanks for, to the editors for making us editor's choice. So I think, first of all, it'd be good to orientate ourselves as to um, what the C9-ORF72 mutation gene is and, and what do we know about it? Okay, so the C9-ORF72 expansion, it's a repeat expansion, it was discovered in 2011 um, and it's the cause, thought to be the causative mechanism in, in about 10% of ALS and about 50% of FTD cases. Um, and it has been associated with some other symptoms um, uh, Parkinsonism and psychiatric symptoms too, but that, that's more of an emerging picture. Um, but our um, research uh, was from the point of view of ALS and we were, we were interested in the expansion um, as a survival factor. Um, so there have been several reports that people who have ALS caused by C9 or F72 have a worse prognosis than um, people with who don't have that form of ALS. And so we wanted to expand on uh, previous work in that area by looking at subgroups uh, by uh, gender and site of onset. Um, and the, we had noticed in the Irish cohort originally that there seemed to be a different um, effect of CNNOR72 on survival in males, but with just one country alone, that was too small a group to really do the, do the full analysis. So we reached out to our European collaborators in um, four other countries, um, the UK, Belgium, Italy and the Netherlands, and we were able to gather data on approximately 5,000 patients, of whom about 9% had the C9 or F72 expansion. And, and so obviously it looks like to look at the prognostic factors of C9 or F72 and the expansion, uh, you needed to look at certain demographics, as you mentioned, sort of gender, sites of onset and things like that to see if they were potentially playing a role in the survival curves or in the survival factors for these um, genetic mutations. Is that right? That's right, exactly, yeah. So what did you find? I mean, your, your results when I read the paper showed a very clear and striking message. So could you walk us through that for us? Well, we initially, um, we basically studied the survival of the people with C9 or F72 versus the people who didn't. And we found that they had um, a worse prognosis with a hazard ratio of 1.36. But after that, we wanted to look at the subgroups. So we broke um, the full group down into eight separate subgroups by gender and site of onset. And we drew survival curves for each of those different groups. And by um, looking at the survival curves and seeing which groups could be combined, we were able to narrow it down to three different groups. Uh, and the first group were spinal onset patients, except for males who had the C9 expansion. And then the second group were males who were spinal onset and had the C9 or F72 expansion. And then we had all the other bulbar, all the other patients who were bulbar onset. And we found that in males who had spinal onset and had the C9 or F72 expansion, prognosis was worse than in other patients who had the C9 or F72 expansion. So uh, females with, with C9 or F72 or males with bulbar onset C9 or F72 didn't seem to have worse survival. 
than those without the expansion. Right. And what about sort of females with the spinal onset and the and the expansion? Was that also not as clear as the males with the spinal onset and the expansion? Yes. In, in the females, um, regardless of whether they had bulbar onset or spinal onset, we found no difference between people with or without the expansion. It was only the males who had spinal onset that we saw this difference. And so from that, we basically concluded that the, the overall effect of c 9 f 72 on survival was being driven by this group of males who, ha- who had spinal onset and the c 9 f 72 expansion. And what can that finding tell us that we can potentially apply for future research in C9 or 72 expansion, in particular looking at the driving factor of it being predominantly males with spinal onset? I mean, we're, with this study that we've done, it's it's an epidemiological study and it doesn't involve lab work. So there's a limitation to um, how strong an interpretation we can make on those results. But it does point to a couple of things. And, and the first is that C9ORF72, even even when ALS is caused by C9ORF72, it's not the full story. There are other factors at play. Um, and it also sort of indicates that there might be an interaction between gender or, and or site of onset and the C9ORF72 expansion. And that's it. so we're interested in hormonal factors, um, for one thing, um, but it, we'll have to look at that in follow-up studies. Well, um, James, thank you so much for joining me on the JNMP podcast and for telling us all about your work in this month's Editor's Choice. I've really appreciated your time. Oh, well, thank you very much again for having us and, and thanks for making us Editor's Choice this month. So that was Dr. James Rooney from the Trinity College in Dublin. And we were talking about his recent paper, which you can download for free right now on jnmp.bmj.com. And the same goes for the paper I talked about earlier. Um, and you can download that as well. And thank you so much for joining us on the JNMP podcast. Mm-hmm.